Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach English literature and film studies at McEwen University. And the following was a lecture that I gave in the winter of 2022 on steampunk Star Wars. So the title on this first slide, Steam Wars, was the title of an article that I published many years ago and the editor was super excited about how short the title was. Normally academic titles are like blah, 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 colon, explanation. And this was like two words, Steam Wars. And so he was really excited about the concision of it and he was like, we should, we should just go with this. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And in hindsight, I kind of wish I hadn't because I, I think it made this article somewhat unsearchable. So that's why I'm titling the uh, YouTube and podcast episode Steam Wars, Steampunked Star Wars or something like it. Um, because... I want people to be able to find it because when you when you have when you have people who are doing research, they got to be able to find secondary sources to be able to substantiate claims, etc. And that's actually how this whole talk began a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Although it was actually it was 2008, and it was the holiday season, and it was Houston, Texas. And I was on vacation with my family, visiting my sister and her family, and I needed to write a term paper. And so off to Rice University in the heart of Houston, I went and I availed myself of their photocopier liberally with my goggles on. I had my steampunk goggles on because they're just welding goggles that have been painted uh, while I kept the photocopy thing open, which just made things faster. But I protected my eyes and looked like a total nerd, but it didn't matter because it was the holidays and no one was there but me. And I photocopied a ton of stuff because this was in the days before every journal putting their stuff online digitally and trundled back to my sister's place to get to work on my research. Now, one of the books that I'd grabbed was Space and Beyond, the frontier theme, the frontier theme in science fiction. I'd started to think about how there was a sort of sense of a frontier in steampunk, but I don't want to get too far into that today. I just want to say why I grabbed Gary Westfall's Space and Beyond and how that connected to my sister saying, I really want to do a Star Wars marathon while you're here. And I thought, that sounds great. I'd love to do a Star Wars marathon, but i got to write this stinking paper. And w a, a, an approach that I have taken for many years to writing papers is write where you are. Write what is interesting to you that connects to the course that you're in, something that you can align to it, some sort of hook that you can throw on it. Or if you get a topic that you're not particularly interested in initially, immerse yourself in it because then if you know you're swimming in it constantly, then you're able to think about it in fresh and unique ways. So there I am thinking about a possible Star Wars marathon along with Gary Westfall's Space and Beyond among so many other texts about really early science fiction because at this point, that's what I think steampunk is drawing from. I'd find out later on that I wasn't, com that's not a completely correct uh, assumption. Um, but I, I was, you know, and I was Googling steampunk because, you know, I got to go to the internet for this stuff. There's not, there was one academic article that had been written directly about steampunk at the time, or at least it was the only one that was available to me in our library system uh, between the University of Alberta and McEwen and some of the other universities here in Edmonton. And it was Stefan Hantke's article. Um, and it only got me so far. I needed more. I needed way more content. Uh, and I knew that I'd be allowed to use web sources if it was something brand spanking new. I mean, if you're, if you're looking at a 
new movement in genres or in whatever it is that you're studying, you may not be able to rely. In fact, you most often won't be able to rely on scholarly sources because, you know, scholarly publication moves at the pace of a glacier or a bantha. And I came across this image in my searching of a steampunk lightsaber. And I was immediately like, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be cool if there was more stuff like this? So I did a little more searching and lo and behold, there was not only a steampunk lightsaber, but there was a steampunk Darth Vader illustrated by Eric Poulton. Now this guy had done this stuff almost two years prior to me discovering it. So it wasn't like it was brand new. It wasn't quite that serendipitous, but it was pretty darn serendipitous because Poulton's image of this vintage looking Vader spurred other artists to do steampunk art of their own and a steampunk Star Wars art of their own, there was a challenge on a website called CG Society to steampunk Star Wars as though somebody had requested character and tech designs for a steampunk Star Wars video game. And all of that was already in the pipeline by the time I was writing this paper. So, you know, striking while the iron was hot. But, you know, I, I, I got to thinking about my background in comparative literature and my background in comparative religious studies, um, out of which, you know, came this idea to take original Vader and put him up against steampunk Vader and assess what religious scholar, religious studies scholar Jonathan Z. Smith refers to as the difference a difference makes. This was a concept that came out of my background in comparative literature and comparative religion. The difference a difference makes. You put two things next to each other and sure, you're going to talk about similarity, but similarity doesn't get you very far because it's like, what do you say? Like black armor, Prussian looking helmet. Um, but then Poulton's steampunk Vader looks like, you know, the guy who designed the Eiffel Tower designed that arm. His lightsaber is messy. It's more like an arc reactor than it is just this very sleek, as we called them way back when, laser sword. Vader's look is is very, you know, sleek lines, very clean, very neat and tidy by way of comparison to Poulton's. The, you know, Poulton's Vader is wearing jodhpurs. He's wearing these like riding pants, right? He's He's got... Um, the, the, the nature of the technology of his, you know, his, his cyborg nature is very exterior. It's, you know, we didn't really know, you know, that Vader was largely mechanical when we watched that first film. You, you assumed, but you couldn't know how much of him was because it's all underneath his, his armor. This, uh, steampunk Vader is exteriorized. And I began to think about the difference a difference makes. And I wondered, could I, perhaps get a more objective idea of what steampunk is by looking at steampunked Star Wars images and comparing them with their originals, like comparing them with the, 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 the you know, first images, early images, or just any of the images from the canonical Star Wars with these steampunk images. And uh, because I, I'd already been I'd already been introduced to steampunk at one of the, at a convention earlier that year, but talking to steampunks about what steampunk is is always this moment of like I can tell you what steampunk is because I am steampunk, and that's not very useful to me because what 
you know, what steampunk was for one person, say, who was really into the crafts and art side of things was that it was a do-it-yourself movement. But that didn't always transfer over to every steampunk, steampunk fan's experience, nor did it always manifest in steampunk narratives, be they, you know, text, film, or game. I wanted to see what the steampunk aesthetic was outside that sort of subjectivity. And this paper became an opportunity for me to do so. Now, I identified three features of steampunk because of this paper that I wrote, which became an article, but I didn't identify them at the time. So just to be clear, if you were to go and find the Steam Wars article, you would see that it's, it's like the seeds of what became these three features of the steampunk aesthetic that became the core of my research. Well, what are these three features? Three features as I've identified them, and I'm going to explain these in depth later on, uh, are techno-fantasy, retro-futurism, and neo-Victorian. And so if somebody comes up to me and they say, what is steampunk? I'm always like, what do you want? You want the short answer? It's like that movie Wild Wild West with Will Smith in it. Or it's like, uh, more recently, I can point to things like, you know, the, the Christmas movie Jingle Jangle. Um, there, there are other opportunities for me to just point out and go, it's, it's like that. But if somebody really wants to know and they really want to get an earful, uh, then I'm going to say, okay, it's techno fantasy, it's retrofuturism, and it's not neo-Victorianism as it turns out, not neo-Victorian. It uh, certainly was at the time, or it certainly seemed to be at the time, although further research shows that it really never was exclusively that, but rather that it was something people, people who we would refer to perhaps as gatekeepers said, if it isn't Victorian, it isn't steampunk. I remember a lot of people saying that sort of thing. Um, but what we're going to find out through the, through over the, the course of this course is that it wasn't necessarily always that way that there have always been uh, always been instances of steampunk that were outside the victorian umbrella or parasol as it were but let's start with techno fantasy and talk about that and we'll move on to retrofuturism and then finally to whatever it is that it that that you know steampunk is if it isn't neo-Victorian, or if it isn't Victorian, right? Um, Techno-fantasy, my summary statement about this is that it, you know, if I'm just talking about this at a barbecue, I'll just say, techno-fantasy is that something looks like science, but works like magic. And that's steampunk. It looks like science. It has the veneer of scientific stuff going on, technological, uh, you know, concepts. Star Wars certainly has a decent amount of techno-fantasy going on to begin with, but steampunk... Uh, it, it, it has that veneer, but it, you know, is it working because of some actual rigorously scientific concept? No. Um, and people would tell me, they'd be like, you know, steampunk is science fiction. And then I would go and I'd read steampunk and I'd like, I, but none of these things are working because of actual scientific theories. They're working because of outdated, outmoded concepts of, you know, substances like phlogiston or ether that we used to think were scientific, but had their basis in like alchemy, but we've since rejected. And so, you know, somebody says, hey, uh, you know, but, you know, it was science in those days. Well, at one point, alchemy was more or less science. So, you know, am I going to, am I going to take every instance of alchemy and say, oh, that's, that's also science fiction? No, we, we relegate that to the fantasy section. So I was looking at steampunk and I wasn't seeing an awful lot of rigorous science in it. Uh, instead, I was seeing this thing, it looks like science works like magic, which is somewhat uh, encapsulated by this lovely 
comic strip from the series Hark a Vagrant, where Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who was an actual engineer of the Victorian era, this guy designed some of the greatest wonders of the 19th century in the British Empire. And uh, so he's a legit like if you if you took what Isambard Kingdom Brunel did and made a story about that, then it would be scientific. Um, and he's meeting a steampunk fan, and the title of this strip is "Brunel is Tired of These Time Traveling Assholes." So up comes a steampunk guy, and he's got his goggles and his semi-Victorian-looking garb on, and he's like, "Isambard Kingdom Brunel, wow, check my awesome steampunk goggles." And Isambard says, "What do they do?" Check it! Gears! Tell me they do something! I put a shitload of cogs and watches on my boot! And it's that shitload of cogs and watches on my boot thing that was also, to a large degree, in that maker movement. Crafts and, and art kind of work. So you say, well, this guy made a steampunk computer. Did he? Or did he just put steampunk stuff, a veneer, some, a shitload of cogs and watches, on a computer? And it was still that digital object underneath, you know. And so, yeah, that one works like science or looks like looks like science and works like science because it's got science inside. But when you go to write about that in a narrative or even sometimes when I would be at cons, well, the first con I was at, this guy was explaining his cosplay to me. And uh, he was a traveler to the center of the earth. Well, right there, we're outside science. We know the earth isn't hollow. We know that you can't travel there and visit the dinosaurs or whatever, you know, is beneath in a number of different hollow earth narratives from the 19th century. We know that's not scientific now. And if you write about it, it's fantasy. And he was telling me that, you know, this is the stuff that he takes to the center of the earth. And he was pointing out this thing on this wonderful backpack that he had. And by the way, none of this is to diss it because it's still absolutely freaking amazing, gorgeous, cool art. And I loved this backpack, but he was explaining to me this one part of it. And it, it clearly had a basis in, in, in the sort of science that you'd get from H.G. Wells when he invented a substance like Cavorite to have his lunar explorers visit the moon. Cavorite isn't real, right? So when we imagine completely imaginary substances um, and then just go, and that's why, this is sort of hand-waving, that's techno-fantasy. The Encyclopedia of Fantasy defines techno-fantasy as follows. In simplest terms, techno-fantasy is fantasy that has scientific or technological trappings or uses scientific or technological tools. It is distinguished from science fiction in that there is no attempt to justify such use in scientific or quasi-scientific terms. Sometimes there is a bit of gobbledygook. Gobbledygook. I love that this, <laughs> this is academic work on the depth and breadth of fantasy um, edited, edited by John Clute, who's one of the great giants in science fiction and fantasy scholarship has the word gobbledygook in it. Some days I have to wonder, did I, did I keep this in my, my steampunk aesthetic just so I could say gobbledygook a bunch of times before I finished up, you know, doing all my research. Um, but it is sort of gobbledygook. And you take a look at the early work of James Blaylock and you're going to see some of that. You take a look at a number of recent, um, 
steampunk works and they they come up with just like oh we we you know we improved upon uh the envelope for airships and so this one can fly like you know like an airplane when you know airships didn't really fly like that or we found a special gas that isn't at all combustible and you don't get hindenburg moments um so there's no attempt to justify such use in scientific or quasi-scientific terms Sometimes there's a bit of hand-waving, gobbledygook, but both creator and audience know this for what it is, and that's techno-fantasy. Looks like science, works like magic. And you, I saw this in one of the steampunk Star Wars images way back when, way before I'd chosen techno-fantasy as one of the, the crucial features of this aesthetic. You've got a blockade runner from Star Wars. The Blockade Runner is the ship at the beginning of the original Star Wars movie from 1977, which we now call A New Hope. Right at the beginning of the movie, gigantic Star Destroyer chasing this tiny little ship. The tiny little ship is a Blockade Runner. And while it's, you know, for for what spaceships had looked like up until this point, it's kind of clunky. It's kind of, you know, uh, cumbersome looking, but it's it's very science fiction-y, very spacey, very technological. Even if at the end of the day, it probably still turns out to be techno fantasy, you know, hyperspace. But it's absolutely hard SF, hard science fiction, by comparison to Daniel Heltzer's steampunk version of a blockade runner, which I have uh, in this slide. And really all this is is a deck with a bunch of, what, repulsors underneath? And maybe we go like, well, repulsors, you know, it's an anti-gravity, it's a magnetism. No! Heltzer explains none of these things, never mind that he's just got some smokestacks in the background belching out what? Coal smoke? Coal? causing you to fly with repulsors and then for the absolute win, way in the background there, uh, a paddle wheel. Is a paddle wheel steering this thing in the air? Is that how is that how air travel works? Have we been doing it all wrong? Um, no, but it looks cool. It looks old-timey. And to Daniel Heltzer, it must have looked steampunk. And this is one of the reasons I loved doing this study, was that, you know, if you go to a steampunk aficionado or steampunk fan, and you say, tell me about what steampunk is, they're sort of immersed in it in a way that doesn't give them that objectivity. Whereas what I had here was digital artists who just thought steampunk was cool and wanted to take a shot at it, taking something that wasn't steampunk and making it so. But they were basing this near as I could tell from the discussions at CG Society, entirely in just surfing the web and seeing what they saw, you know, other people claiming steampunk was. So rather than me coming in and saying, well, steampunk is whatever I say it is, it's Victorian. Um, these guys were just going steampunk, you know, if I was going to steampunk a spaceship, I got to put a paddle wheel on it and I got to have uh, some coal smoke rising out of, you know, stacks on the top. Eric Poulton's version of the Death Star looks like the sort of thing that you would navigate by. Looks like a mix of a globe and an astrolab mixed with like giant cogs. There's like, you know, there's like a, a actual um, equator mercator thing going on with some like a big, big cog running that as though it clicks around the outside. Maybe that's how they tell time. I don't know. We don't know why any of this stuff is here, but it sure looks old-timey and it looks cool. And you can see the death ray from the Death Star in this case. Uh, Poulton calls it the massive solar orbiting electrically me mechanized analytic engine Mark VI, because you can't have concise names in the steampunk world. They always have to be as cumbersome as the technology that they are representing. Um, but how does this thing even work? Right? There's a giant cog in the background. Right away you go, well, there's a cog. You can see how it works. Um, Poulton outright states at his website that it's 
alchemy, which powers this thing. So you have a little hand-waving, a little magic, a little steampunk force. Maybe that's what alchemy is in the steampunk universe. It's the steampunk force. Bjorn Huri's version of C-3PO, the droid uh, C-3PO, um, in, in some ways almost immediately recognizable, but still a lot more exterior with the gears and pulleys and whatnot. Like his legs seem to be working on the same technology as fan belts in your car. Um but he's got a backpack with a smokestack coming out. And again, I've just got to think, like, is he running on coal, right? That's usually, that it was often something that people shoved into steampunk art really early on because it was like, well, it's steampunk. So if you got steam, you've probably got a coal engine, some kind of a steam engine. Uh, and therefore, you know, you were always sticking steam engines on everything. And so 3PO's got a steam engine on his back and he's got some gears and whatnot. Uh, not as many cogs, although they are still present there, as Seeloff's version. And I've misspelled Seeloff's name here. My apologies. But at least I have his website there, which spells his name correctly. S-I-L-L-O-F not S-I-L-O-F-F. It's S-I-L-O-L-L-O-F. Anyway, cogs, cogs, cogs. So many cogs on C-3PO. He's like cog-3PO. Um, and, and those gears, those cogs, are an explanation, a techno-fantastic explanation for how this robot works. And we don't really question this sort of thing. There was an episode of Doctor Who, The Girl in the Fireplace, which was set before the Victorian time, but there was like coggy robots in that episode and you know you're watching it and you don't sit there and go oh how how do these things even think you just like oh look at the cogs moving it, uh, clearly that's how this works you know that that robot can think with cogs didn't you know um even though my, like my wristwatch never seemed to become sentient uh back in the day cogs as exteriorized technology to say this is how this robot works. And it made me think of Greg Broadmoor's uh, lovely Dr. Grodbort's Contrapulatronic Dingus Directory. Yes, that's the title of it. Uh, part of the Ray Guns series of books that came out of the Ray Guns art that Greg designed. He's part of the Weta, or he was part of Weta Workshops. I'm not sure if he is anymore. But uh, he made these wonderful vintage looking Ray Guns. And then he made catalog. He made a catalog as though there was, like, if you lived in the universe that these ray guns inhabited, um, then you could get this catalog once a year and it would tell you which ray guns you could buy. And one of the selling features of one of these devices was it's full of scientific looking cogs. And that's really all you needed with steampunk for the longest time. Uh, and then there was a backlash and people say, oh, the cog is dead. Um, but uh, Martin Danahe, who is absolutely a steampunk scholar, he's a neo Victorian scholar, but he's written quite a bit on steampunk, says, that the steampunk aesthetic works by enlargement and accretion on objects and bodies. Neo-Victorian elements are layered upon contemporary technology in an effort not only to make inner workings appear on the outside, but also to give them more mass so that they will not melt into air. That they will not disappear. Uh, there are a lot of people who think that um, steampunk was a reaction to the iPhone and technology like it, where... In times past, we seem to be able to know how a thing would work. Like you could be a gearhead on a car and you could tinker around with it. Now you need a computer degree to tinker with your car, right? And some people think that steampunk was a reaction to that. I'm not 100% sure 
that that's the reason I think that there were some people who reacted that way. Uh, but I don't think that everyone who got into steampunk got into it because they didn't like their iPhone. Cause I can tell you there was a shitload of iPhones at every steampunk convention I was at taking photos of all the wonderful costumes and art. But this idea that the steampunk aesthetic works by enlargement and accretion on objects and bodies is certainly true. We look at 3PO and what do you have to do to make 3PO, um, steampunk you just jam in some cogs i mean that's really all that either of those artists have done is to to do this idea of enlargement and accretion as well as to make inner workings appear on the outside making inner workings appearing on the outside seems to help give us this sense of of steampunk aesthetic another uh image from siloff siloff wasn't part of the cg society challenge siloff's just uh he mods uh, action figures and he modded a bunch to look like uh, steampunk star wars um, and he was doing it again around the same time as all of these other artists, but his version of Luke, you look at the original version of Luke, Luke lights up a lightsaber in the 1977 Star Wars. It's psh, and it's not attached to anything. We don't, he didn't jam a battery pack into it. We have no clue how this thing works. We just accept it. We go, okay, laser sword. And it's very elegant looking. The beam is, you know, contained. It's not arc arcing all over the place like the you know steampunk Darth Vader thing that we saw earlier um, but here Siloff has given a power source an exteriorized power source to the lightsaber and there's a there's a like a cable some kind of hose running from the steampunk lightsaber to a power source and he did this more than once he didn't just do it for Luke he did it as well with Obi-Wan Kenobi and his version of Darth Vader they have these exterior power packs they have these hoses they have these cables running to a power source that exteriorizes the technology of the lightsaber Daniel Heltzer also had this in his moment of Luke facing off against Vader and I don't know if that, you know, was there, a, was there a line of influence? It's difficult to know, but this was a repeated concept. And uh, Bjorn Huri, who was a late addition to the CG Society Challenge, but went on to finish many more works of steampunk Star Wars art in the years that followed that, that challenge, uh, has Luke with this really cumbersome brass and iron uh prosthetic appendage you know like luke got his hand cut off and now he's replaced it with this this really heavy contraption which is it a lightsaber is it a steam saber i'm assuming it's a steam saber um and then his giant hose running to something behind his back you know, it just, it looks to me like Luke's going to have really bad back problems. He's going to be listing over to the one side, but we don't care about any of that because it's full of scientific looking cogs. It looks like science, but works like magic. It is straight up techno fantasy. And a lot of this just operates on the basis of ain't it cool. Ain't it cool? I have shown people steampunk art and gotten that reaction so many times. I wish I could cite them all because I'd be able to prove this, that nine times out of 10, steampunk technology is designed the way that it looks for people to go, that looks cool. Not for me to look at it and go, that looks viable. So techno fantasy looks like science works like magic. And we move on to the second facet of my steampunk aesthetic, which is retrofuturism, which is often understood as how the past imagined the future, but should be understood as how we imagine the past imagining the future. So you had like retrofuturism of the 1950s or the 60s looking to the future and where is my rocket pack? Um, but when we talk about it, in, especially in, in steampunk, we are looking at how 
not how the past actually imagined the future, but how we imagine the past imagining the future. Like certainly there, there is a little bit of this in the, in the, in the sense that some steampunk artists have gone back to the works of Albo, Albert Robida, Robida and, and said, okay, I'm going to make it look a little bit like that. But a lot of steampunk artists are just going, you know, it would be really cool if we did this. And they imagine the past imagining the future. We all we have to do is understand that the, that like in the 19th century they were not interested in ray guns. They were interested in cleaner skies without coal engines. And we've got steampunk artists going, put the coal back in. And the, the people from the Victorian era were like, get the coal out, right? We want we want clean skies. We don't want these satanic factories anymore. Um, or or the corset, like corsets everywhere in steampunk fashion. The women were trying to get out of the corset. They wanted the practical clothing that came at the end of the century. You know, it was a constricting sort of article of clothing. Um, so, you know, is it is it what the past imagined the future as? No, it's how we imagine the past imagining the future. As Elizabeth Guffey and Kate C. LeMay have stated in Retrofuturism and Steampunk, this is a collection in the Oxford um, Handbook to Science Fiction, Retrofuturism can be defined as an ambivalent fascination for a future that never came to pass. Retrofuturism can be defined as an ambivalent fascination for a future that never came to pass. Well, I'd say it's a past that never came to pass. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's something that didn't, it didn't materialize because again, it's not what the past was even hoping for most of the time. It is straight up as most science fiction is, it's hardly ever you might say, Dr. Bashan, you said, okay, how about we just go with speculative fiction? Because I said that, you know, it's not, it's not science fiction, but speculative fiction is hardly ever about the period it's set in. It's almost always about the moment that that writer was writing. And so steampunk isn't really about the 19th century so much as it is about the 21st. So it's how we imagine the past, imagining the future. Retrofuturism is almost always associated with the technology. So you end up with people talking about retrofuturism in regards to something like Milyanko Simic's version of a TIE fighter, um, which, you know, the TIE fighter in Star Wars had these two planes on either side, uh, sticking vertically, and then a sphere in the middle, and that was it. It's just a nice little TIE shape, really, you know, very, very simple to draw when you're a child. Uh, Milyanko Simic's version is a tri-fighter, haha, <laughs> good pun, Mil good pun, Milyanko, um, the triplanes of World War One. And I hope you just felt the first tremor in the force um, of what I've already, you know, talked about neo-Victorianism. Victorianism is that part of steampunk. I hope you just felt the first tremor because triplanes, World War One. Are we dealing with the Victorian era anymore? Uh, we'll come back to that. But a triplane retro, right? We don't have planes like this anymore. We don't design planes like this. But Milyanko Simic goes, oh, okay, so it has to be retrofuturistic. It needs to be how the past would imagine the future or something like that. So he designs the tri-fighter. So technology, absolutely part of what retrofuturism is about. But I don't need to really argue that too heavily because retrofuturism and the techno-fantasy of steampunk go hand in hand. And I, I, don't, I don't think I would ever have had anyone going, I don't know about that. But then I expanded upon this moving retrofuturism from just talking about the technology to talking about the social sphere. So let's take a look at some of the heroes of Star Wars as they are imagined in a steampunk milieu. Um, Han Solo, as played by Harrison Ford, looking like, you know, a pretty cool and hip 1970s space cowboy. A little bit of disco with his shirt you know, undone down to the middle of his chest. Uh, Bjorn Hury's version, you know, with the great big mustache and the mutton chops and a bowler hat, 
stripy pants and the strange looking boots doesn't look as much the cowboy necessarily although there are still vestiges of it this feels a little more victorian right it feels a little more 19th century london perhaps um but as with so many steampunk heroes han solo in a steampunk universe has goggles He's got goggles and a ray gun. Of course, he's got a ray gun because he's Han Solo and he shoots first or he shoots at some point anyway. So he's got to have a pistol in his hand. But he's got goggles on. And I'm like, okay, I started thinking about the goggles while I was working on this paper. Why, why are there always goggles? What do goggles signify? I needed to start thinking about that. What, when did people really wear goggles? They wore them on steam trains. Initially, this is, this is, this is a historical tidbit. Initially... People thought that trains, you know, trains travel so fast that their organs would rupture and or that their eyes would be torn from their head. Um, so, you know, you wear goggles to protect your eyes when you're traveling at really fast speeds. And as it turns out, that's what early motorists did, right? If you didn't have a windshield or even when you did and the front area was open, you got some goggles on while you're driving your car. So goggles protect you when you're high flying at high speeds, perhaps in high adventure. So goggles are like a symbol of, of those things. High flying, high speed, high adventure. I know that when I, I put on my goggles for the first time and looked at myself, I was like, whoa, I look way cooler than I did like two seconds ago. Um, I got my goggles given to me by Captain Nemo and I'll tell you that story another day. But when I first got them, that's that's how I, I was like, oof, looks cool. So you put goggles on it. That was the joke at the time. Like just slap goggles and cogs on it. I guess it's steampunk. That was like the snide response to it. Just because you got goggles doesn't make it steampunk. Well, it does for Chewy. Uh, here we got Chewbacca, publicity photo versus um, the steampunk version. Uh, in steampunk, Chewbacca still has no pants, but he's got a top hat and he's got goggles and gun belts or explosive belts or something is carrying a bag full of dynamite. And by the way, Han Solo is also carrying uh, gun belts, right? He's got, you know, weapons galore and Chewie's got his bow caster, um, but he's got goggles. So he's high flying, high speed, high adventure. And then we come to Eric Poulton. Remember Eric Poulton? Eric Poulton's the guy who kicked off this whole thing. And Eric Poulton illustrated Princess Leia in a very similar pose to a publicity photo of Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia, but you'll notice a few differences. Number one, the gun shrunk. In the publicity photo, Carrie Fisher's packing a stormtrooper's rifle. It almost looks like a little submachine gun. It's a pretty big gun, especially for someone as diminutive in stature as Carrie Fisher was. Her gun has shrunk immensely <laughs> in Eric Poulton's version. She has no gun belts and she has no goggles. She has a parasol. And this is before... Gail Carriger made the parasol a, you know, essential steampunk. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> Fashion accessory. There it is. Accessory. God, I hate being live without a net. Um, making these videos, you know, you just, you screw up. It's there for everybody to see forever on YouTube. Love y'all. Okay. So parasol and, 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 but no gun belts, no goggles. She's not high flying. She's not high speeds. She's not high adventure. Let's move over to Seeloff again. Seeloff's uh, version. If we go back and you took a took a version of uh, took a look at the version of Luke that Seeloff created, Luke's got goggles. See on this slide, Han's got goggles. Leia, no goggles. She's got a corset. She's still got a gun, but no gun belts. No, you know, it is really without. You take that pistol out of her hand, and there's no sense at all that she is out for high flying, high speed, high adventure. 
And Daniel Heltzer takes it even a step further from that uh, in his image of Slave Leia, captured by a top-hatted Victorian-era, I guess, Jabba the Hutt. Uh, she looks like she's been illustrated by Toulouse-Lautrec, the guy who made the paintings for the Moulin Rouge, and she's ready to go and dance the can-can at the Moulin Rouge. Uh, Seeloff, Slave Leia, chained up, no gun belts, no, you know, it, just a damsel in distress. And one of the things I observed in that Steam Wars article uh, and the paper that preceded it was that steampunk is has more damsels without distress than it does damsels in distress. Or at least by the time I was writing about it, it certainly was the case. I observed that at cons, that the cosplay was absolutely traditionally feminine in many cases, but it had many, you know, we would consider traditionally masculine accoutrements like gun belts, like pistols, like goggles. And Bjorn Hury either picked up on this or he just felt like, you know, representation uh, needs to change. And it really did feel, by the way, like in 2008, 2009, like we were sitting in the middle of a shift in the way that women were being represented in science fiction and fantasy. Um, and this, this, these, these moments in the steampunk Star Wars stuff felt emblematic to me of those things. But Bjorn Hury's version of Leia is back to the um, pose of Carrie Fisher in that publicity photo, but she's got her, you know, she's got the gun, she's got the gun belts and lo and behold, she's got goggles. She is ready for high flying, high speed, high adventure. And, but I mean, that dress isn't going to take her anywhere. Cause I mean, how do you run in that thing? Uh, but somebody rectified this in a bit of 3d art, 3d, um, computer art, digital art, highly sexualized, not going to deny that, but they slit the skirt to give Leia the room to run. Let's just ignore the skirt for a moment and take a look at the goggles. They're attached to an aviator's cap in this one. And she's got a corset, but it looks like the kind of corset that an adventure has. There's all these little pouches and whatnot. Um, she's got the gun belt. She's got the gun. And it looks like she's got the plans to the steampunk Death Star in her other hand. But that aviator's cap, wow. Like, was it just that the artist didn't like make doing anything with hair? Was it easier to do? I don't know. But an aviator's cap doesn't just say that she's ready for high speed, high flying, high adventure, but that she might be the one to get you there. And that's, those are significant shifts. And so this is what I called social retrofuturism, where we were imagining the past, imagining the future out of ideas regarding uh, egalitarianism uh, to marginalized groups, uh, women, uh, BIPOC people, people of, 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 of other races, marginalized groups, races, uh, people of color. And Catherine Seaman, uh, who um, contributed to a, an anthology called... Steampunk, uh, steaming into a Victorian future, a steampunk uh, anthology. Um, my, I, I had an article that followed her right up, and it was all about this social retrofuturism stuff in the novels of um, Gail Carriger and uh, Sherry Priest. And I loved that they put Catherine's in the same section as mine because of this quote. Steampunk is uniquely positioned, says Seaman. Steampunk is uniquely positioned to explore ideas that have their roots in our past and to consider and critique, consider and critique social and technological solutions of past, present, and future alike. Not just technological retrofuturism, but social retrofuturism and that we consider and critique these things. Does steampunk always critique? No. But it is almost always dealing with these things, whether by intention or by caprice. Well, if we're going to have the, uh, you know, uh, retrofuture, re retrofuturism of imagining the past, imagine, you know, how we imagine the past, imagining the future, we have to ask the question, which past? 
And this brings us to Neo-Victorianism and whatever I replaced it with. Which past are we talking about? G.D. Falkson was one of the voices of steampunk back around 2008, 2009, 2010. He was the man about town uh, in steampunk circles. And in an introduction called Steampunk 101 to a book on uh, a book that was about um, a very high profile uh, steampunk art exhibit, Falkson wrote that steampunk is Victorian science fiction. It wasn't the first time he'd said so. Um, he was regularly interviewed uh, and he, you know, he, he posted his own thoughts in various places. Uh, Falkson over and over again, steampunk is Victorian science fiction. And people saw Falkson as an authority on the subject. And this idea was promulgated. It went out into the world and people, you know, were like, it's got to be steampunk. It's got to be Victorian or it can't be steampunk. Well, I have all sorts of problems with the phrase, the, the statement that steampunk is Victorian science fiction. Um, it's, a, it's a gross oversimplification. I know I'm just being pedantic. I'm not necessarily beating up on Falkson here because I think that what he might have been doing is the same thing that I do, you know, when I'm at a party and somebody says, what's steampunk? And I only get one crack at stating what it is. And I don't necessarily get to give my huge academic uh, theory about it. I don't get to talk for, you know, an hour about it on YouTube. I'm only going to get two minutes if I'm lucky before their eyes glaze over and they're completely bored. But there are a number of problems with this statement. First and foremost, steampunk isn't a Victorian product. It wasn't made in the Victorian era. Um, people say like Jules Verne and HG Wells were the original steampunk writers. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. They were writing, if we could call it anything, science fiction for their time, but science fiction wasn't even a term in the 19th century. I mean, it was there. Somebody had, somebody had coined it, but it wasn't in common usage. What you, what you talked about with, um, steampunk, or sorry, what you talked about when you talked about science fiction, you just say scientific romances. That's what they called them in the 19th century. So that pedantic side of me says, eh, that wasn't even science fiction back then. But if you're going to rope Jules Verne in there, Jules Verne was French and very French and not a big fan of the English and consequently would not have appreciated being been called uh, a Victorian. No way. Not for Jules Verne. And H.G. Wells? Edwardian. Not Victorian in terms of timelines. So there's all sorts of messiness here. Okay. Because like I say, there were a lot of people who'd be like, H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, they were the originals. And I'm like, no, they weren't. Steampunk doesn't happen until the 80s, maybe late 70s, the earliest, the 60s. So it's not Victorian science fiction. It's something else. So, but that was, that was a perception. There were a lot of people who were like, steampunk is Victorian science fiction. That's how they define it. And I was like, nope, I'm not okay with that. Um, so I started wondering about neo-Victorianism. I thought maybe neo-Victorianism would work because it's fuzzier, right? And uh, this is a quote by Anne Heilman. Well, it's a, it's a statement by Anne Heilman and Mark Llewellyn that I am quoting from neo-Victorianism, the Victorians in the 21st century, where they, and this is an oft-cited, oft-quoted passage. So many articles on steampunk, even more on neo-Victorianism. This, this is like the Rosetta Stone <laughs> for neo-Victorian studies. Neo-Victorian texts, be they literary, filmic, or audiovisual, must in some respect be self-consciously engaged, like it can't be by caprice or by accident, with the act of reinterpretation, rediscovery, and revision concerning the Victorians. Now, I take a look at that and I think, Hmm, that feels like steampunk. Now, I didn't come across Heilman and Llewellyn 
back when I was doing my initial research, but it's the, the one that I go to now. Um, but I was just working with what the Oxford English Dictionary defined Neo-Victorianism as, and it came pretty close to this. Anything that, that sort of vaguely resembled the Victorians seemed to be Neo-Victorian, uh, according to the OED. And I, I honestly, for the first while, thought, yeah, absolutely. Reinterpret reinterpretation, rediscovery, and revision concerning the Victorians sounds about right. When we take a look at some of the steampunk Star Wars art, especially the stuff that we've already looked at, we're going to see a bunch of stuff where we go, that feels, it feels old-timey in a Victorian sort of way. But it feels Victorian in a sort of masterpiece theater kind of way, I would say. But let's just take a look at this one, another one by Eric Poulton, uh, where we've got Han and Chewie, Han and Chewbacca. And Chewbacca is a bulldog creature in in this he's got a bowler hat he's got mutton chops he's got the you know the beard and the mustache the waxed mustache that i guess people in the victorian era must have had because it's always in these pictures um and he's got a vest and a bow tie he's finally found pants chewy with with clothing now um but his weapon is this great big you know gun with this arc reactor up at the up at the front that, you know, that, I guess that's where the, the, the beam, whatever energy is going to come out of this thing is going to emit from, uh, and they look like gas lamps, like London gas lamps of the 19th century. So that's got an old timey feel to it, right? That's a, that's, that's got to be Victorian. Um, but, but Han, on the other hand, looks a lot more Western here. Uh, it looks a lot more like he's just a dandy in the old West. So a little more American and maybe a little less London, a little less UK, a little less British. Is the Wild West Victorian? I ask this because a lot of people thought that steampunk began with the television show Wild Wild West. At the very least, we could all agree that the movie version of Wild Wild West was steampunk. And yet that's not something you'd call Victorian. You'd say that's, that's a Western. It's a weird Western, but it's a Western nonetheless. Or how about Alistair Lockhart's version of Darth Vader, where Vader's mask is just a straight-up gas mask without any embellishments. This gas mask could have been on the battlefields of World War I, and World War I is not Victorian. I also love that he's carrying a superheated bar of iron, scariest lightsaber ever. You will not only be burned, you will be crushed. Um, but that gas mask is not Victorian. Edwardian at best. Lockhart goes on to steampunk the Star Destroyers, the massive Imperial starships, as, drumroll, Graf Zeppelins. Graf Zeppelins were not developed in the Victorian era. They were not even really fully developed in the early Edwardian era. But they were ready by World War II. We know this from propaganda posters and, and the actual flight of many Zeppelins. We know it from the Hindenburg. And Lockhart, steampunk, spaceships then they're going to be airships and this this was done a couple of times there are other instances of this sort of art but airships are ubiquitous in steampunk they're everywhere but they're not victorian and this has always struck me as like a what like we didn't have this kind of airship in the 19th century so somebody says it has to be victorian well then you know the fight the, the pushback is always like well we're just playing with the timelines and i'm like i get that but then if we're going to describe the aesthetic that we're using, we can't use the term Victorian. Playing with the timelines? Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. But that timeline isn't necessarily Victorian 
or even neo-Victorian. Claire Nally in Steampunk, Gender, Subculture, and the Neo-Victorian states that steampunk has a number of affinities with the critical practice of neo-Victorianism, at least the study of steampunk does, but it is important to acknowledge it has a very different literary lineage. I would argue that it's not even all that literary at the end of the day, and they are not synonymous. So neo-Victorianism and steampunk are not synonymous. That's the takeaway from Nally, and there are other people who have said this as well. I'm just citing Nally. She's one of the most recent people to make this statement. Um, and, and I said it at one time. I said neo-Victorianism was one of the features of steampunk. I published my dissertation with that in it, mostly because I was like, I want to get this thing done. I was already questioning it in 2012 when I graduated. When I handed in my dissertation, I was like, hmm, something wrong here. Something not quite right. Um, I had been in conversation with some other steampunk scholars and felt like, there were cracks in the veneer uh, that we could no longer go with this neo-Victorianist thing. Even if I was, even if I was trying to do it in the most fuzzy um, boundaries sort of way, it was the wrong term to be using. Why? Because so much steampunk, as I've already shown, is coloring outside the lines temporally. Edwardian period, and here we've got Marcel E. Mercado uh, evoking the Romantic period. Uh, not even in Victorian context, but in French context by having Leia carrying this very American-looking flag um, into battle. Uh, this image evokes this French, famous French pa painting of Liberty leading the troops, um, French Revolution, um, but it's a romantic painting. And what Mercado is working with is romantic period clothing. He hasn't even updated Leia's clothing to be officially steampunk if steampunk is just Victorian. So... And, and this isn't just happening in the steampunk Star Wars circles. This was just a way that I could like crystallize, concretize the conversation to say, let's just look at these particular images and see what they evoke. Um, and then beyond the temporal side of things, we have to think about the cultural side of things. That to be Victorian means something very Anglo-centric. And, you know, we, we could just go with Verne, Frenchman, not interested in, you know, but as I said, I don't really consider Verne steampunk, but here we got Marcel E. Mercado again. Love this guy's art, by the way, but he's just a gold mine for this entire conversation. Uh, and this sort of pulpy um, poster, poor old man Ben. So here's Obi-Wan Kenobi and he's wearing a turban and he's sitting next to a hookah. Uh, very sort of Orientalist Middle Eastern imagery. Uh, poor old man Ben hooked to the hookah pipe again. What will happen once our intrepid heroes decide to fight? Will he be too passive to help join their plight? I love it. It's just so, it, it feels like that period. But I begin to, to go, wait a second. If Obi-Wan Kenobi is in the Middle East and the Middle East is Tatooine, then why is Luke white? <laughs> why, why is Han white? Why are any of the heroes except for Obi-Wan white if they if they hate luke at the very least uh, you know some people are going to be like because he's the son of darth vader i'm not just roll with me here why are any of the rebels white uh colonial oppression during the 19th century who was the empire the british were the empire right and if ben's from anywhere in a steampunk star wars he's from the empire originally you know in that sense uh but at the very least he's in the middle east here and that starts to move us into other cultural spaces not necessarily in a, a really positive way, but in a fairly reductive way that if we're just playing in the fields of neo-Victorianism might be, you know, to put in all those re-statements um, from that, that, that quote about what neo-Victorianism is, that sometimes it reifies 
outmoded, outdated, racist, um, sexist ideas. And here we have, again, Mercado, beautiful art, but Moss Eisley, rollicking good times. Let's zoom in on Han and Chewie. Han, very white. Chewie, not sure. He's got tattoos, sort of Islander-style tattoos. He's got dreadlocks. He doesn't feel white here. He certainly doesn't feel Anglo-centric, but I can't tell where he's supposed to be from. Is he, you know, is he a person of color? It's it's unclear, but there is a there is a move at this point. There's a shift to imagine at least one of the rebels, even if he's you know an alien in the original, as someone from outside the colonial boundaries. Um, one of the worst examples uh, of this whole move in the steampunk Star Wars art was in Eric Poulton's image of Jabba the Hutt, which came up as straight Fu Manchu, straight Orientalism. Um, and it, in some ways, was part of a, a conversation about a term that was beginning to be used, Victorientalism. But it was being used as though it were like a, it was a positive thing. Like if you steampunked the East, then it was Victorientalism, and you know it was in the sense of Edward Said's ideas of what Orientalism is—the othering of a group from outside this colonial space. But it was an incredibly negative representation. But at the very least, what these images tell us is that if we go with steampunk must be Victorian, then it excludes all sorts of expressions and especially people who might want to be part of what they like, what's going on with steampunk, but they don't identify with that Victorian focus. Diana Foe, who is... You know, she's a great steampunk scholar. She's also a really wonderful editor of fiction. She actually just recently won a Hugo, um, wrote many articles, and we were in conversation about race and steampunk on several occasions. And I, and when we would talk, I would always say, I, I just, the stupid term, neo-Victorianism or Victorianism, but I don't know how to get rid of it. An industrial era just isn't doing it for me, or the 19th century isn't enough because of the Edwardian thing. And there was just, you know, the, the Graf Zeppelins. Were, the, there's all sorts of stuff being pulled into the steampunk aesthetic. Victorianism isn't the right umbrella. Industrial isn't the right umbrella. I don't know what, I, I don't know what is. But Foe said this about this situation as people from marginalized backgrounds increase their presence in the steampunk community many have worked towards disrupt disrupting steampunk's default identity of eurocentric whiteness and my conversations with foe led me to reject any use of victorian be it victorian straight up or neo-victorian or even hyper victorian ultimately when i finally got the chance to write uh, a new dissertation as it were on steampunk in my book i threw victorian out the window i you know i didn't reject it entirely you got to talk about it the roots of steampunk absolutely victorian but not always so how do how do we arrive at what comes next what do i replace it with and how do i talk about that in a steampunk star wars context given that my steampunk star wars research led me to neo-victorian well you know i've got an image here from mortal engines the movie version of the Mortal Engines based on Philip Reeves' steampunk book. And when Mortal Engines was released, there were people who were like, this movie is more steampunk than steampunk. It's so steampunk. It's crazy steampunk. It's steam, steam, steam. And then there were a few people, very few, and they were mostly going off of interviews with the director, Christian Rivers, 
saying, no, 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 this movie's not steampunk. There's no top hats. There's no corsets. There's no white Eurocentric Anglophone steampunk is more what he probably should have said. Um, or if there is, it's just not the kind that we've seen before. Anyway, there was some disagreement over whether or not Mortal Engines was steampunk, regardless of whether or not the book was. One of the other things that was said frequently about Mortal Engines is that it was a lot like Star Wars. Oh my God, the plot was so much like Star Wars. They borrowed the plot. They stole the plat from Star Wars. It's okay. Star Wars stole the plot from somewhere else. Stole a whole bunch of other stuff from previous movies. The Searchers, Swiss Family Robinson. Uh, there's a... Um, it stole. Okay, I'm not going to get into that right now. This is not a lecture on Star Wars. It's a lecture on steampunk Star Wars. We'll just go with Mortal Engines is a lot like Star Wars. Okay, well, if it's steampunk, then, it, then Mortal Engines is basically a steampunk Star Wars movie. The other thing that Mortal Engines was often compared to is Mad Max Fury Road because of its post-apocalyptic nature, I suppose, but probably also because of the high-speed chases with these really retro-futuristic, techno-fantastic cities on wheels, towns on wheels. They all had sort of an old-timey feel. I just wanted to focus on Mad Max Fury Road for a couple of moments because when Mad Max Fury Road came out, people came to me and they said, is that movie steampunk? Because they, you know, they know uh, what I do and they're like, can you tell us? Will you, will you be the authority? And early in, early in my research, when people would ask me that, I'd be like, no, or yes. And I started changing what I was doing with that to going, why are you asking that question? Like, what about Mad Max Fury Road makes you think it's steampunk? Is it just all the shitty, rusty veneer? Like, because there's a lot of steampunk that just uses, like, old crap that we found out in the backyard. And we turned it into an object, and that makes it steampunk. And it looks old, doesn't it? And But that that's a link. That's an idea. Um, is it just because the one guy wears goggles? Gosh, I hope it's not, right? You know, that, that would be reductive. But then I got to thinking about the rat rods in the movie. And I'm going to go into this at length later in the semester. But right now, I just want, want to say it. Rat rods, vintage vehicles, have for some time been considered steampunked cars. Steampunked vintage cars. Vintage. And that word really started to roll around in my head. And the more that I thought about it, the more I liked it. That word works. It's even got the first, same first letter. I can throw out Victorian and I can take vintage. Vintage as old-timey as way back when, but not ancient. Not so old that it's swords and knights in shining armor. But rather old like, ah, my great-grandfather's old crap in the barn. Or, you know, old like the last, the century before the last century. But here's the thing about vintage. What we think of as vintage shifts with time. What was vintage in the 1980s isn't vintage anymore. In fact, some of the vehicles in Mad Max Fury Road were contemporary for me. There's a Mack truck in, in Mad Max Fury Road that looks awfully vintage to my son. More on that another time. Let's just go with vintage for now. That's the word that I chose. And I stuck hyper on the front. Why? Because the vintage of movies like Mortal Engines, of most steampunk imaginings, is wild and crazy. It's absolutely gonzo, to use a term from the guy who coined steampunk. Um, it's batshit crazy. It's hyper vintage. It's not just old. It's pulled it all out of this crazy toy box and then dressed it up and messed with it old. Well, it is about the past, but it's a retrofuturistic past based in techno-fantasy hyper-vintage past. And when we go with hyper-vintage, it makes space for characters like Anna Fang. 
an Asian Han Solo, if ever there was one, and a female Han Solo as well. When we go hyper vintage, we don't have to play by the rules or the restrictions of Victorianism or Neo-Victorianism. Instead, it opens up the box. Not so much that it's meaningless, because we any definition has to enclose at some point, or why have it at all? But hyper-vintage describes the sorts of airships that we see in a movie like Mortal Engines or the types of airships that we see in a book like Leviathan by Scott Westerfeld. And when we take these three features and we put them together, we mesh them together, what we get on the other side is what I would argue steampunk is. There are people who would say that I'm wrong, but I think that their ideas about what steampunk is are mired in previous expressions of the mode of steampunk. Steampunk, like this, these moving cities, on these traction cities in Mortal Engines, is on the move. It's a moving target. People are still producing steampunk art and narrative. And so long as they are, we have to be ready, as I have been, and I'm not just saying that like, a, oh, as I have been, but I think it should be instructive. As academics, we need to be ready to revise what we've said in the past. When new information comes to light, that makes us change our minds about that. Was steampunk very Victorian at one time? Yeah. In a lot of its expressions, arguably so. And even now, a lot of those expressions still are. But that doesn't mean they all are. And if we're going to be good steampunk scholars, we have to be ready to be able to go outside that restrictive space of Victorianism into a space of the hyper-vintage. As we admit that what we're, t what we're studying here is something that is changing and growing.